this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode two of the Improving the System season, Just Science met with Jerry Laporte, former director of the Office of Investigative and Forensic Sciences at NIJ, to discuss forensic science research and development innovations. Over the course of his career, Jerry Laporte has worked with scores of agencies on varied, high-profile cases. From granular points about chemistry to the philosophy of science at large, this 2018 conversation reflects the diversity of his resume. Listen along as our guest discusses the value of statistics, the definition of light, and his experience working as chief forensic chemist with the Secret Service in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to the Just Science Podcast, the podcast for forensic science professionals funded by the National Institute of Justice. We have the Jerry Laporte here, Director of the Office of Investigative and Forensic Sciences at NIJ. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, John. He had been in forensic sciences since 1993 and had spent a number of years uh, at the United States uh, Secret Service and became the chief forensic chemist, apprenticing under the uh, legendary Tony Cantu. Before that, he got a uh, Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Commerce in Business Administration from the University of Windsor in Canada and a Master of Science in Forensic Science from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and has conducted over 100 lectures, seminars, and training events in 13 different countries and served on just about every committee in forensic sciences and every association uh, in forensic sciences that you can name. Jerry actually has one of the toughest jobs in forensic science. It's not really um, understood just how much NIJ has to do in order to uh, maintain the programs there that benefit all of the forensic science community and the ins and outs of of Washington are difficult and complex. NIJ is a small agency. There aren't the, the forensic science community is one of the most important constituencies NIJ has. And as a research agency, it's even a minor player within the Office of Justice programs. So uh, we do appreciate all the work that you do on behalf of forensic sciences, uh, Jerry. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. Right now, what is the mission of the Office of Forensic Sciences and kind of where is the direction that the office is heading right now in terms of uh, program? Yeah, so I'd say um, the Office of Investigative and Forensic Sciences, which is a relatively small office within the National Institute of Justice, you know, we have what I consider to be very important and major roles. There are a few things that are going on that I would say uh, where our, our mission in the office has essentially evolved since the 2009 National Academies of Science report that talked about strengthening the forensic sciences in the United States. So at that time, actually, our office wasn't even an office. We were a division within the Office of Science and Technology at the time. And then in 2010, we actually became our own office. And part of that had to do with the implications and the suggestions that came out of the National Academy of Sciences report. So there were suggestions that a separate uh, agency, almost, if you will, like a brick and mortar type new agency be created. That's way beyond my level. But, you know, I believe when uh, after the September 11th uh, attacks in 2001, of course, the Department 
Department of Homeland Security was created. That was certainly a much more bigger endeavor, but you know that was a new sort of bricks and mortar type structure. And that's very, very complicated in the government. It's, it's sometimes not easy. It can be very costly. So I think financially, it may not have been the best thing to do at the time. But because NIJ has a unique role in the Department of Justice, uh, which is we are the research, development, and evaluation arm of the Department of Justice, we have independence with respect to research and development and science. I think all that really needed to be done was uh, maybe some changes in policy and a little shift in our priorities. But in my opinion, you know, I think we were, the, we're, we were the right place to start. Although we're a a relatively small agency, we are the lead federal agency for forensic science funding in the United States with respect to research and development. And then also when you combine our uh, capacity enhancement and technical assistance grants that, that we provide every year too, when you put all of that together, it is a unique mission because there's a focus on really three things. The first is conducting research and development or supporting and facilitating research and development. The second is to provide technical assistance uh, in capacity building grants to laboratories throughout the United States so that they can alleviate their backlogs of evidence. And then the third one, which is much, much more difficult, is really trying to take new technologies and new methods that are developed through our research and development mission, and then trying to transition those into laboratory. And that, that becomes uh, much more difficult, but we kind of view that as, as one of our essential tasks to do. It's interesting that NIJ does hold technical assistance and uh, all of those assistance grants, as well as the research work. And of course, uh, we're very, very pleased that the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence is at the core of that uh, tech transfer kind of activity. It's a hard one in forensic science because forensic scientists by nature are conservative about adopting new technologies and approaches because it, it really needs to maintain reliability as you bring in new ideas. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. So transitioning technologies, and what I mean by transitioning technologies, I think I can provide just a simple example, is when research is conducted and somebody enhances a method, they publish that. Or it could be a, a new technology, a widget, if you will. So so now we have a new technology or a new method that's looking promising, if you will. And it's not that the forensic science community or industry itself is necessarily afraid or hesitant to in, embrace that new technology or that that new method the challenge is making sure that that technology or that method is accurate reliable and valid and then that it can be brought into a laboratory and streamlined into a laboratory without affecting its overall productivity but it you know th- these kinds of things are very very challenging they require you know, sort of, if you will, a lot of due diligence and a lot of homework that needs to be done to ensure that when you transition that technology into the laboratory, that it, first of all, that it doesn't become too disruptive. Uh, but secondly, that three or four years down the line, we find out that there may be an issue with that method that questions its accuracy and reliability. And if that happens, then that can create chaos in the system. Sure, yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I've worked with a lot of different kinds of folks in public safety in terms of bringing new technology in. Like, you bring something into a police agency, or I've worked in the, with the military, or, you know, in special operations, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm go jumping headfirst, whatever, into it. And sometimes they make mistakes. 
and it can be serious mistakes. Forensic scientists are much much more cautious, but I, I think we're at a very difficult time right now in forensic science. Uh, this whole push in both the human factors and statistical side of forensic science trying to improve not only the reliability but the reach of it. There's a lot of danger I, that we're going to say, okay, now we now go over and do it this way. And a lot of the people who make those suggestions don't necessarily have as practical a view. I think having the partnership between research and practice, I think, is very key in forensic science. There's nothing more important than having that relationship between research and practitioners. If you look back historically at a lot of events, uh, we'll call them, you know, when there were paradigm shifts, if you will, it's always hard to identify when you're in the middle of a paradigm shift because, you know, a paradigm is all about making the shift and transitioning. So sometimes it's difficult to know that you're in the middle of it, but I would say with a reasonable degree of certainty here is that we are in the middle of a paradigm shift in the forensic sciences. Uh, And it's, you know, a couple of the things that you had mentioned, first and foremost, understanding cognitive bias, human factors, and how that has uh, an impact on on casework and practical work that's done in the laboratory. Secondly, how examiners write reports, issue their conclusions, and then actually testify to those findings by trying to use statistical analysis in some way. So that, that is not something that many of the disciplines in the forensic sciences have done historically. Certainly, DNA is one of those areas. DNA analysis is, is an area where there's a stronghold with respect to the use of statistics. And I think a lot of the other disciplines are trying to use that as a model, use DNA as a model in how we can express ourselves. As, I, as I've said many times over, forensic scientists, generally speaking, we are people that have science degrees, science backgrounds, um, but many of us you know, will have not a complete background in statistics. Certainly we've, probably most of us, with respect to requirements in any science degree, you've taken some level of statistics. I just happen to have a minor in statistics, and I consider myself to be what I would say is I'm out of the danger zone. <laughs> because I know that I don't know enough. So I know that there are people and statisticians that we need to go to. So I have enough statistics to know that. Sometimes when you don't have enough statistics, then you become a little more dangerous. You know, we need to embrace other disciplines, whether it's the mathematicians and the statisticians and the, the computer science folks, and bring them into our, you know, into our world, if you will, to help us develop solutions, hopefully solve problems. Yeah, I mean, the uh, thing about statistics is, I think, very, very similar to the concerns that we have in general about, you know, bringing research into practice. And that is, if you talk to 10 10 different statistical researchers who, who worked in this field, you'll get 10 different views about what the framework should be. And each one of them has their argument to be had. And I think a lot of the community right now is like, okay, I'm happy to try to work, you know, and try to make my findings more quantitative, but work it out over there first. And so I think there's a, a lot of groundwork that NIJ is going to have to do to try to make that happen. Yeah, and we, you know, we have, we've, we've tried, and I think we've been very successful in, in this area to engage statisticians and academicians into our research uh, with respect to individuals that we provide funding to for research, but also one of the important aspects of what we do at, at NIJ, because we're primarily a funding agency for research and development, 
is to actually bring in individuals into that review process. And so that peer review process of when we receive applications is extremely important. And any scientist will tell you that rigorous peer review, you know, is one of the cornerstones to to eventually, hopefully, hopefully good research that gets produced afterwards. So part of that process, we engage statisticians, we bring in experts from other disciplines that are part of that review process now. It's, it's sort of just very secondhand for us that when we're considering peer reviewers, that we have a, a statistician in the mix. That's very important for us. For those of you who uh, may consider applying for a research grant at, at NIJ, I can tell you that the peer review process is taken very, very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. We have a very rigorous protocol. Um, certainly decisions about funding research, like I said, the, the peer review evaluations are certainly a cornerstone of that. But there are a lot of other things that go into that review process that probably a lot of folks don't realize. Just sometimes it's simple things in terms of there may be an ongoing project already in that topic area that's been proposed. And so the newly proposed application could be an excellent application, but we may actually already have some research going on in that area where we're trying to let that move through the process. For example, an application may receive a, you know, a really great peer review score, but then we realize, well, we're already funding something similar, so then we won't, we won't fund that. We're required to document all of that. We have, to, we have to rationalize and justify any decisions where, and I don't even like to say we go against the peer review, but if we were to sort of do a rank order of peer review scores, whenever we move out of that order for some reason, you know, we have to have significant documentation to justify that. And sometimes priorities change over time, and so a certain proposal may not fit what we're trying to do. And also, sort of, there's a reality to all of this, and that is we have a limited amount of funding, and uh, we, we're trying our best to fund different areas in the forensic sciences. What a lot of people don't realize about forensic science is that forensic science in and of itself is not a discipline. It's many, many, oh, many yeah. disciplines. It really is. You, you can bring in any science any day of the week. There's a lot of different fields that you might apply to do a particular kind of comparison. Now, you know, I've, I've said this a few times as well, too. If you look at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, they have the Organization of Scientific Area Committees, the OSACs. They have, you know, over 20 disciplines that are represented within those OSACs. I think what we sometimes forget, too, is that even within those disciplines, there are methods, multiple types of methods within those disciplines as well, too. So that can, that can branch out. For example, trace evidence analysis might include hairs, fiber, glass, mm -hmm. soil, and a host of other. Carpet, yeah, carpet so fibers yeah. now is a big one, right? <laughs> yes. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different, if you will, you know, subdisciplines that break up. Sure. You know, I have a, a unique expertise in ink and paper chemistry. Sure. Um, so I, you know, within the question documents field, you know, there's handwriting examiners and. Uh, there's people that do examination of counterfeit documents, and I've been in this sort of unique area where I do ink and paper chemistry, which is quite unique. It's trace evidence alike, but and there's a lot of disciplines like that where, where you have these very, there's a lot of fine minutiae that go into, into different methods, if you will. 
you know, I had a certain perspective coming at it from a, as, as a research scientist. And when I was there, I think having somebody who has the practitioner background is excellent and really is necessary at this time in history. It's nice to have that at NIJ. I remember actually visiting the Secret Service Laboratory several. It was always one of my favorite places to go. Uh, partly because of Tony Cantu, but also just uh, it was so much fun. When I was in research science, uh, a lot of the f folks who were working were like Tony in the sense that uh, you know they spent a lot of time. I'm, I'm going to build FTIR library for this class of chemicals or the NMR spectra for this. And Tony was very much in that tradition of of, of saying, okay, if we're going to understand inks and dyes, right? We're going to get every bloody ink and dye, and we're going to characterize them. And you could just smell it in the laboratory that, that that kind of fundamental work was was going on. You know, working at the Secret Service, I can't I can't even put it into words. Uh, what a great experience it was, and what I learned there, especially sort of mentoring under uh, Dr. Tony Cantu. Certainly, the one thing that I that I loved about working at the Secret Service is we were the best at what we did. There was nobody else in the world. We were the lab where other labs from around the world came to see exactly what we did in terms of the chemical analysis of inks and paper and those, those sorts of things. You know, we had the largest writing ink collection in the world. We had over 10,000 writing inks that dated back to the 1920s. We had an inkjet ink library. We had standards from various types of photocopy machines and laser printers. And we used all of that information for cases that were unique to the Secret Service, which certainly involved threatening letters to the president and the vice president, counterfeiting documents, counterfeiting money. But where that ended up going was that grew and we were looked at by other agencies. Mm -hmm. So in my time there, ironically, I probably worked more cases for the FBI. I worked a lot of intelligence cases and we did cases for state and local laboratories as well because of our expertise. But at the same time, like I, you know, I started out saying that that experience was invaluable, uh, and this is just my personal urges to expand out and learn more about the other forensic sciences sort of led me to the track at NIJ, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I went. So, you know, as, as you know, sort of metaphorically could put it, I worked deep in the weeds, and I think I was just looking to broaden and expand my knowledge. So now I'm at the sort of 30,000 foot level of forensic science where I can see everything that's going on as opposed to being down in the weeds and sort of knowing ink and paper chemistry. I think there are only anywhere from 10 to 15 experts in the entire world in this particular area. It's, it's an interesting, interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Because when you get into an individual case, you know, it's, it's very, very much about you're trying to get a particular answer. At that point, you uh, either uh, have a validated method, or in some cases, you might even develop a validated method as part of the case, but uh, you need to have your ducks in a row by that point. Yeah, and that was, uh, certainly that was the beauty of working at the Secret Service is, you know, we, we were an accredited laboratory, so our methods were, had to follow certain protocols and standards, but also to, you know, we had the opportunity to, like you said, actually develop and validate our own new methods. One of the things that we certainly got into and the late, latter part of my career at the Secret Service was using direct analysis and real-time uh, mass spectrometry, or DART MS, to analyze inks and then develop a method for that, and we published it. That's not something that a lot of people get opportunities to do in just a standard state and local laboratory mm -hmm. where sometimes it's very production-oriented. 
so that was that was a great opportunity uh, when I was the chief forensic chemist there was we did get to develop new methods. Now, certainly like any other laboratory, you know, we had to validate them and we couldn't just sort of do that midstream in casework. But when we were challenged with certain things in casework, we tried to solve those problems later on. The Secret Service lab operates in a very unusual place with respect to its interest in documents. So you, you get involved in a lot of different kinds of forensic disciplines. Uh, I know uh, like Palmer impressions are important in document examination because that's how you know, somebody's writing, right? Their palm is going to be hitting that paper. Uh, I know, uh, I remember very distinctly uh, looking at the lab where these poor souls try to put together shredded documents. <laughs> I, I don't think I could, I could probably do that. In addition, all the ink and, uh, and other kinds of analyses. It's a really unusual kind of place in that regard. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's certainly a lot of different types of analysis that people don't necessarily think about when it comes to question documents. You know, like you said, shredded documents, but you can also have charred documents. When people try to burn documents, we can put those back together. When they're water-soaked, they put them, you know, they throw them in the water somewhere. You know, we can do our best to try and uh, bring those documents back to life, if you will. Certainly got a lot of inquiries on historical documents. And, you know, we did. We worked a lot of very high-profile document cases. I understand you did some review work even in the Michael Jackson cases. Yeah, there was, you know, certainly the Michael Jackson case, some sort of interest in uh, whether or not Mr. Jackson's fingerprints were found on some pornography magazines. This was child uh, pornography. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was also, you know, we worked the John Bonet Ramsey case. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there was a, a letter that was left at that scene. We worked the uh, Washington, D.C. sniper uh, mm-hmm. shootings. I was involved for many years. Probably, I'd say the sort of the biggest case of my career was in the anthrax letters. Oh, um, right. So I worked Marathrax, on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I worked on that for I, four I or five years. I worked in ChemBio at the time, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so ironically, John, and I hate to bring this up, but the ChemBio part of it came under scrutiny by the NAS. Yeah. Um, and uh, ironically, we did a lot of work in the identification of where the envelopes originated from, mm-hmm. and that was never scrutinized. So <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. So. You had one up on us in the <clears throat> so, bio area. Yeah, the, yeah, the DNA part of that uh, was, was scrutinized. Uh, but, we, you know, that, that was probably one of the bigger cases that I had worked. I got a letter of commendation from then-FBI uh, Director Robert Mueller, uh, so it was one of those cases that was uh, that was that was pretty interesting. And then there are many cases that I couldn't even talk about uh, that had to do with uh, following the 9/11 attack. In the Jackson case, you all did end up verifying that his fingerprints were found on the uh, on the material. Is that right? Yeah, we used a uh, specialized technology, uh, re- reflected uh, ultraviolet source to identify the fingerprints uh, that were found on some some pornography magazines. That, that was some of the things that we did. Once again, you know, sort of without talking too much about why we did those types of things, you know, we had specialized expertise in uh, tagging and tracking of certain things. So you use alternate light sources uh, in, in, you know, whether it's infrared, UV, or even microwave technology that we had some some expertise in, I'll say. And specifically, Dr. Cantu was a well-known expert in that area. So we had that background for things that we didn't normally apply in casework. So those types of things were, were great to use to be able to put into practice to a certain extent. These are technologies that are, you know, are generally available now as well, too. 
Sure. How did the documents figure into the John Bonet Ramsey case? How did that work? So there was a letter that was left at the crime scene. The the person who did the examination in that case, there was a Sharpie marker that was left at the crime scene, and then there was the letter that was done. So the ink and the Sharpie marker had matched the ink that was used on the letter. So the, the person could have taken the Sharpie marker. It appears that they actually wrote the letter at the crime scene with the Sharpie marker. But other than that, I mean, I you know I don't want to comment on the case. You know, it's certainly sure. it's still a cold case. It's certainly public knowledge that, that we worked the writing ink analysis in that case as well, too. I see. And then in the sniper case, they left notes at their scenes, didn't they? They certainly did. They left uh, multiple notes at multiple scenes. When all was said and done, we obtained some pens from the car that they were apprehended in uh, and then matched up those pens with uh, some of the letters that were written as well, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I so. did not, I, again, another, another one that I'm, I'm learning all over the place here. Yeah. Probably another one of those big cases that I was a part of was uh, there was a uh, suspected terrorist. His name was Jose Padilla. He was going to set off a dirty bomb in New York, or at least was alleged to have, have that planned out. He went to an Al-Qaeda training camp. And I analyzed all the documents that came from the Al-Qaeda training camp. One of them just happened to be a form that Mr. Padilla filled out. And that was part of the application process to enter into and be a part of that Al-Qaeda training camp. They had an application process to be in Al-Qaeda. They sure did. <laughs> no different than uh, us filling out an application to, for a job. So, sure. There you uh, go. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that, you know, that, that was turned over to me for examination. And I ended up testifying in that trial. That was the first trial that was held on U.S. land of a suspected terrorist at that time. You know, that was at Guantanamo Bay. It was an interesting trial. Uh you know, everything, of course, went went just fine. Uh, he was convicted. So uh, it would have been fa- fascinating to see you and uh, Tony talking over all of these kinds of not only cases, but the technology at the time. And uh, I have enormous respect for, for, for both of you. Now, I, I will say, while I've got you on the podcast, we're going to talk about the definition of light. Okay. Because <laughs> we, we've had a back so, and forth between FTCOE and NIJ about the definition of light. Yeah. And I know you and, you and Tony, from a technical document examiner perspective, want to limit the definition of light to only visible light. Is that right? That's correct. Now, you know, from a pure physics perspective, that light is any electromagnetic wave, right? And it, because it could be of any wavelength and energy. Yeah, so I, I feel a little out-battled here, uh, sort of, you know, going up uh, against a, a, a physicist in this particular area. Uh, but yeah, so we, we've always defined light as, you know, anything from, you know, roughly in, uh, in wavelengths, you know, we're talking about 400 to 700 nanometers. Uh, so, so to us, that part of the, the light, the visible light spectrum is light. Anything outside of it is not light. So if it's UV or IR, then we don't consider that light. I remember in some of my, when I was training in my mock trials um, at the Secret Service, you know, I had one time sort of uttered the word ultraviolet light. And everybody just sort of jumped all over me and said, Jerry, you can never say ultraviolet light because UV is UV. You know, light is light. Those are two terms that shouldn't go together. So I think sort of going back into my sort of my training, you know, we were just sort of trained to think like that. I don't argue with physicists. I don't argue with mathematicians. And I don't argue with statisticians. I stay away from that. So I'm a chemist. So I'll argue with chemists uh, any day of the week. And I'll even argue with the biologists, too. Um, <laughs> 
So good for you. Yeah. yeah. It, which and I'll tell the biologists that you know, by the way, that whole DNA molecule thing that you talk about, it is a molecule, and there's all kinds of chemistry, you know, that makes that a molecule. So chemistry is the basis of all biology, right? mm-hmm. because as many know, it's true. Yeah, it's true, mm-hmm. and. I think physics is the basis of all chemistry. So that's why I don't sort of get into arguments with physicists. Once again, I'll sort of, you know, I'll kind of stand down when it comes to arguments about with physicists and and statisticians. Well, we always enjoy having the back and forth with NIJ over over the uh, over the technical reports because we want to try to make sure that they speak to the practitioner and they speak to the researcher, which you know brings us full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's no, nothing better than a, a sort of a nice. Uh, theoretical knowledge debate on uh, on certain concepts and theories. And so. of course, this podcast is all about arguing. We argue with everybody here. It's- yeah, some people seem to think that sort of scientists all agree with each other, um, and that's so far from the truth. You know, scientists are probably no different than the politicians. But at the same time, though, that's what science is all about, right? It's yeah. all about challenging. Interestingly, uh, if you go back to some of the old philosophers of science, none of them tell you to ever stand down in science. It's to, mm-hmm. you know, it is to actually to argue and to challenge. Because if we all sort of accepted each other, you know, then science wouldn't move forward in any way whatsoever. Francis Bacon, you know, when the, the conception of science really, although uh, obviously empiricism is part of it, Empiricism is a part of it only because you want to try to expand the amount of knowledge on which you can base inferences. And then the, the, the inferences are really at the core of science. What, how much knowledge can you have so you can make reasonable inferences and that, that then are really about the arguments, right? That's what you're arguing is about. What are the implications of all this knowledge you have? Actually, you have a little bit of an interest in the writings of, of old philosophers that still permeate today. And, you know, certainly interesting perspectives and not necessarily is anyone right or wrong. It's just, you know, it's just, it's different, just a different outlook on science. I have my outlook on science. I'm sure other people have their outlooks on science. But uh, I think at the end of the day, that's what makes us love science so much. You know, it's not, it's not static. It's always changing. You're entitled to have different views. And, you know, that's the great part about science. It really is. Because the, the qualitative disciplines, you're building up a set of knowledge about a particular case, and you're trying to make an inferential judgment, right? The core case of the human examiner and the qualitative disciplines is, my inference is valid. I'm able to pull together enough information so I can make a valid inference. And those who want to make it all deductive and quantitative are missing the point about how those disciplines can be effective. I mean, what you just pointed out, John, is the the beauty and the scariness of forensic science. Um, <laughs> I'm because, scared just listening to you. Yeah, right? so that, you that, that, yeah. the beauty and the scariness of forensic science is that, yeah, in forensic science, you sort of get to take all of that knowledge that you've built up uh, over several years and then apply that and come to a conclusion. The scariness is that, that there's a lot of ramifications and consequences to sure. the conclusions that you're drawing. You can potentially go to court and testify, and, and you know I'm just not going to mince words. Somebody could be put to death, you know, over that. Now I would hope that as a forensic scientist, if I'm going to court and I'm testifying, that there's an entire case. I'm a piece in that puzzle, and I would hope that that's the way it's designed. But it's an important piece, and nobody wants to get that wrong. 
you know, sort of rounding this conversation out is when we talked about this paradigm shift, this paradigm shift is really understanding, you know, the potential consequences of reaching an opinion uh, based on, on science. And if that science in any way is inadequate, not accurate, not valid, or if your opinions are exaggerated in any way, they're not couched, you're not conveying the limitations of your testing, which is all fundamental science, right? If we're not doing that, then we can, we'll go into a danger zone. There's no doubt about it. Sure, yeah. Well, people rely on forensic science. It's supposed to be the place where objective judgments are, are made that are outside of some of the emotions that can often accompany criminal justice uh, investigations and proceedings and things like that. Yeah, and, you know, as a forensic scientist, uh, you know, we get caught in the crossfire of, a, of an adversary system as well, too. But interestingly, if you read a little bit more about uh, Carl, yes, Carl, Carl Popper, one of my favorites yeah, as well. So, so kind of, you know, an interesting thing is that, you know, he does propose that even scientists should be, need to be adversarial as well, too. Once again, this is kind of going back to that point, that arguing science, that uh, constantly challenging that theory, sort of, it's a part of the system. It's, that's what makes science great. At least in my view, I think that has probably been good for forensic science. So when the National Academies of Science came out and challenged us in 2009, that was a good thing for science, or a good thing for forensic science. Uh, it wasn't bad in any way. At the time, probably, you know, looking back, I remember the report was issued in February of 2009. Now, there were a lot of discussions about the report, not necessarily good. If you think about evolution, it was one of those punctuated evolutionary points uh, mm -hmm. in the forensic sciences where it's like somebody slaps you in the face and then, you know, you have to come back at it. You know, that was the NAS report, I think. You know, here we are nine years later after that, uh, after that 2009 report, and I think we've made a lot of headway in that oh, particular yeah, made a lot of progress, yeah. and a lot of it is due to folks like yourself, and we certainly appreciate that. And thank you for being on Just Science, and thank you for your work at NIJ. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. In the next episode, Just Science interviews John Paul Jones and Mark Stolaro of NIST about the organization of scientific area committees for forensic science. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>